What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. I'm in a period of emotional upheaval. Is that all the, oh, I don't care crap? A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm going to steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG-13. May be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. From Hollywood, California, the horror capital of the world, the Boulet Brothers, Creatures of the Night. Hello, my little maladjusted mutants. This is Swan Thula, and as always, I'm here with my brother-sister witch, Drac Morda. Drac, say hello, darling. Hello. We will be your monitors through the mysterious and menacing, sometimes morose, but always magical domain we call Creatures of the Night. Welcome. Oh, Jack, how are we? We have a lot to cover today, and I hope you got your. I hope you are ready because we are burning the midnight oil, and we have a podcast to serve. I am doing fantastic. I was just looking at this magical box of gifts we got from Trixie Mattel. Oh, it's so good, and I love seeing James Manfield on it's, there as well. I know, Blonde she looks fantastic. Together. Looking through it, there's like tons of lipsticks and colors and cute things, everything, and of course, a nice shade of putrid pink. But I think that even has its place for here and there, too, <laughs> when the right occasion calls. I kind of want to do a look with some of this. It'll yeah. be fun. Yeah. No, I think I so. Know, it's just something different. I think pink is in our arsenal of colors. Yeah, I for mean, sure. of course, black and definitely red, but pink is definitely acceptable. There's a lot of nudes in there and neutral tones. Love a good nude. Yeah. I'd like to point out that we are now sitting at about three quarters of the way through the audition process of Dragula season four. Just for listeners out there that don't know, we've gotten more 
applicants in the first 24 hours than in all three seasons of the show combined. So you can imagine that we're kind of ready to pull our hair out here. Yeah, like ready to pull our hair out, ready to scream, ready to kill someone slash ourselves. No, it's been really fun kind of like going through the applications and just seeing how much excitement there is around the world of Dragula and everything that we've created and all of these willing participants in our Olympics of drag, but for the dark-sided children. I'm hearing a lot of good things about the videos that are coming in. I haven't seen a lot personally yet. Hasn't gotten to that part, but there's a lot of good stuff in. And listen, if you can hear the sound of our voices and you haven't submitted your materials yet for consideration, but you plan on it, darling, what the hell are you waiting for? Because time is running out. You know what I hate about the audition process is I've had people come up to us before and say, I was going to audition and I didn't have time and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, it's now or never because you can't think ahead and think, well, I'll audition next year when I'm ready because you know what? We might not be ready for you next year. In preparation and being ready for another season of the Blade Brothers Dragula, we've done a lot of horror binging in our off time, which there hasn't been much, but when we're relaxing and we're winding down from a long day of all of our machinations and all of our plans for the future season of the show, we've been sitting down and enjoying like a nice little horror movie or two or three in the wee hours of the night. It always leads to a second one, right? It, it, it's never it just does. like watch one. It's this like weird addictive. So we started watching, we wanted to watch the new season of Creep Show that's on Shudder. And in preparation for that, I don't know why I always, I'm like, we have to go back and rewatch all the creep shows that ever existed from the original movies yeah. on through season one of creep show that's on shutter and everything in between. I kind of got reminded how much I actually love creep show too. It has such a flavor, like the Creepshow franchise has such a flavor to it. And for people that aren't familiar, Creepshow is a comedy horror anthology of a series of them that came out starting in like 1982. And I can't, I don't know how many there are, but we There's went- There's three movies. Okay. Yeah. And the third movie's terrible, so don't watch it. And we chose not to. But we did watch all of Creepshow 1, which there are five separate stories all together in the entirety of the film. And then we went on to watch Creepshow 2, which had, I think, the same length of time film-wise, but there were only three stories. So they right. were a little mm -hmm. more padded out in each one. Took a little bit longer, but I have some favorites, and I'm usually not a favorite kind of girl. But I did want to ask you like, do you have like a favorite story from Creep Show One? From Creep Show One, yeah, was the crate Creep Show One? The crate wasn't Creep Show One, so I will go with the crate, yeah, yeah, that was a cute story. You were telling me that there was some backstory about that, or like, yeah, there's a lot of horror movies that have homages to that particular story the mm. crate shows up in other horror movies i forget which if you google oh, it you can see i could see that yeah they give a little homage to creep show by showing that crate and i think in another movie they showed like the text that was on the crate somewhere so it's kind of interesting you know that is of course it's always a pleasure to kind of see adrian barbeau on always. screen <laughs> i mean and, and going back she's kind of always there isn't she like mm -hmm. it seems like everything from the year like 1979 to like 1989 Adrian Barbeau was on yeah. the cast, like guaranteed. The like, Fog, no Creep Show, the new Creep Show, whatever. So I think she was in Toxic Avenger. I'm not I 100 think, on I'm that. I'm not sure either, but I think you're right. Not 100, but back to Creep Show 1, I think my favorite goes back to me seeing it for the first time when I was like a child. Um, and I didn't realize that it was Stephen King herself acting in this short. It's called Weeds, but I think that the, the, the long title is The Lonesome Death of Jordy Verrill. Oh, the original story was called Weeds. That's what it was. It was like a Stephen King novella. And then he acted as the character. And I just remember this freaking me out when I was young that the meteor crashed and he touched it and everything he touched kind of grew this, you know, green growth everywhere. And then he ends up like blowing his brains out. And I was like, 
oh, I turned it off. I'm like, I don't think I need to watch the rest of this shit. <laughs> what about Creepshow 2? I think we reacted the same way because Creepshow 2, for me, was, it was so fun, maybe better than the, the original. And my favorite, far and away, is The Raft. Yeah, that's the one that sticks with me from when I watched it when I was younger. Yeah. That freaked me out really bad. Like, even the scene where she's sort of asleep on the raft and yeah. the guy is oddly trying to fuck her while she's asleep, <laughs> which whatever for that, but the she kind of turns and they weren't, they weren't sad to show <laughs> she it. turned over and the whole side of her face was eaten off. And I was yeah. like, okay, yeah, that was good. The end is so good though. Like what a stinger, like I got love away it. from you. And then no, you didn't. He gets gulped and like dragged back into the lake. But. And as much as I love creep show too, I actually hate the first story in creep show too with a passion. It's so weird. I do not like it. I'm not into it either. And it's just, disrespectful yeah, to cultures. I, I don't like it at all. But it's, you know, things change over time, right? It was a movie in the 80s and like things were just looked at differently then. I think George Romero wrote that one too. And we talked about George Romero's writing on the last episode of Creatures of the Night. She's not our... <laughs> we, we love some You're of her work. You're drawing the battle lines here. We love some of her work, but we don't love some of her writing. Well, I'm also excited to uh, to share that we have a very special guest joining us on this episode. I'm of so excited. Lynn Shea is here today. She's going to be talking with us later on in the podcast. If you don't know who Lynn Shea is, you're an idiot. Yeah, her name and face <laughs> at this point are just synonymous with the supernatural world, the horror world. I mean, she's been in a million movies um, and you would you would probably recognize her face if you don't recognize her by name. So we're delighted to say that she'll be joining us a little bit later on the podcast. Why don't we bring in Ian and get started so we can get to some of the fun stuff we have in store today. Well, we do have a multitude of momentous updates for listeners, and to share them, we are going to invite our co-host in now to join us. He should never be maligned as a manservant or minion, but mayhaps our malevolent administrator in all manner of boule machinations, Ms. Ian DeVogler. Ooh, ushering in the Scorpio supermoon, Ian DeVogler herself. Hey, guys. How's it going? <laughs> it's great. How are you? Good, good. I'm definitely feeling the Scorpio supermoon in all of its like weird esoteric ways. So what should we be feeling? What does the Scorpio supermoon bring about? Well, Zelda and company. <laughs> Zelda and Zelda Jr. Ooh. <laughs> I'll definitely take Zelda Jr. Um, I don't know. I read that it's like kind of a weird esoteric time. A lot of like shadow work. It's time for deep introspection. Um, and probably also a time for feeling like a fucking crazy person. I'm in for the say, crazy person yeah. because I am <laughs> moody. Like, mm-hmm. oh my God, I'm so moody today. And I was really moody last night too. And as a Gemini, I just like, I ride those waves willingly because I actually have no choice. But today <laughs> I recognize how fucking moody I am and I'll chalk it up to the super moon. It's the pink super moon. <laughs> Ooh, my pink <laughs> super moon? <laughs> my pink moons. <laughs> <laughs> So, Ian, why don't you update us all on the terrible tidings you bring from the horror world? Welcome, foolish mortals, to the Creatures of the Night current events. I am your co-host, your ghost co-host. Kindly listen up and make room for everyone. There's no turning back now. Our news from the worlds of Hollywood and horror begin here on this very podcast, where I have a few updates from the happiest place on Earth as they appear in their corruptible mortal state. Disneyland's iconic dark ride attraction, The Haunted Mansion, has made headlines twice this week for stories both inside the haunted halls of the mansion itself and for plans to bring the mansion back to the silver screen. Disney announced earlier this year on their Disneyland Parks blog that they were planning on adding some new scares and updates to the Haunted Mansion ride, which park guests can see for themselves beginning on April 30th, 2021. 
with new plant life and tales of terror statues added to the outdoor waiting queue and the interior portrait hallway getting a decorating overhaul, it seems like Disney has put funds back into one of their most successful rides ahead of the announcement that director Justin Simeon would be heading up the newest iteration of the Haunted Mansion movies. Known for directing Dear White People and, most recently, Hulu's Bad Hair, Simeon will be adapting a screenplay written by Kate Dippold, who wrote 2016's Ghostbusters reboot. It's been a few years since we all went to Disney together, but I feel like the Haunted Mansion ride is a no-brainer for horror lovers, and we might be due for another trip after these updates roll out. There's also an interesting story about the Haunted Mansion that came out that they are adding back the Hatbox Ghost, I believe it's called, who was a character that they tried out when they first opened the ride. And for some reason, they couldn't get the visuals to work. It had sort of like this projector thing happening and it didn't work. Mm. So they pulled it out. And it has been missing for like a million years, but now they're, they figured out a way to fix it with new technology and they're going to add it back. And he's going to play an important role in the upcoming movie too. That's so cool. I saw the Hatbox Ghost was one of the updates as well as I think there's a cat that used to be in like the very first iteration of the ride that they're bringing back. And there's one of the old like classic portraits. I think her name is April to December and kind of her portrait changes and she becomes this like really gnarly like old hag. And that's like me excited. over the course of production on the show. <laughs> I'm, I, I start real cute, but by the time we wrap, I'm an old nasty. <laughs> I love it. I mean, I'm excited for the new movie too. Like I feel like Justin Simeon taking a crack at it. I'm like, okay, cool. Like let's have like a skilled director do this. It's been, I mean, what it's like 20 years since the Eddie Murphy one, <sighs> which <laughs> I refused. I remember when I saw the ad for, I was like, no, why? Why? <laughs> why? <laughs> And then, of course, they, like, updated the ride with all the Eddie Murphy movie stuff. I was like, can we not do this? You know, when I was just a little child, I mean, really young, I was probably, I don't know, four or something. I had the Haunted Mansion record, and it was, like, this little book. You know, it was, like, a small, it was a record, and it came with a little book. So you'd play the record, and then you would read along in the book, and it was, like, illustrated. And it basically, the narrator would walk you through the ride. Oh, my gosh. But it was so more cute. flushed out than the ride was. Like, it was, like, the whole story. Probably all the stuff that we're talking about now, like, the totally. hot box ghost and things that didn't make it. Yeah, you could kind of read it. And that's what I always thought of as the Haunted Mansion, because I listened to it, like, ten gazillion <laughs> times. It, like, wore it out. I but love that image, by the so way. It's so cute. For all of you out there that know Jack Morton and you know the Boulay Brothers, just picture her. <laughs> As a little four-year-old, over and over, listening to the tale unfold of the haunted mansion. Well, then let me tell you this, because then you'll understand even more about how I became the type of person that I am. <laughs> so, you know, I was quite a loner when I was a child. So, but the haunted mansion, I loved. I loved all the spooky things, and so we finally went to Disney, right? And I don't know, it was a couple of years later than that, and I was so excited because I finally would get to ride the haunted mansion, right? So we waited in line for like a gazillion years. I mean, it took forever, 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 forever. So we get into that area in the beginning where you start to go down the elevator and the Uh picture stretch. My brother loses his shit. He can't handle it. He goes nuts. He's like, I have to get out of here. And I was like, I'm going to kill you if you do this to me. And so we get down, it goes down and then you know where you go to get in the little the doom cart, box or yeah. where the, really the ride begins. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we go to get in that and I see them and I'm like, okay, we're about to do it. And we <gasps> left out the no. side door and I did not go. Oh my God. I couldn't believe it. I'm like, I am a little gothic child that has very little to <laughs> look forward to. This is one of them and you have taken it from me. I oh, hate him for that. But wow. you know what's kind of a fun story. 
uh, when I went back and this was much later, this was after we met, you took me and we actually went on the haunted mansion together for the first time. Aww, isn't that cute? <laughs> wow, this whole like Drax saga is great. Yeah. Yeah. Now we run our very own haunted mansion for wayward ghouls. <laughs> <laughs> no, it reminded me. I, I we were doing an interview for. I think it's gonna come out like in like two or three weeks after the podcast. But I mentioned that because they were asking like, where's the origins of your interest in dark things? And I'm like, you know, it's always been there. It's not totally. like one day I was like, hey, I like horror movies. Let's do this. It was like from a really young age. It's always been there, but. Anyways, totally. that's my story for the podcast. Good night. <laughs> Picking up with Drax's burning question that I unfortunately did not have an answer to at the time of last episode's recording, new information has come to light regarding the huge deal between Sony and Netflix, where Netflix will acquire the exclusive streaming rights to major Sony releases, starting with Morbius in January 2022. Variety broke the additional news earlier this week that after the 18-month streaming window on Netflix, the rights will immediately transfer to Disney, where the titles will begin streaming on Disney Plus or other platforms, leading some to speculate that titles will be distributed between Disney Plus and Hulu, which Disney will take full control of in 2024. I am utterly confused. I don't think we're supposed to understand it. All we need to do is consume it's here's what, the thing it's what they're banking on <laughs> so when's the news gonna break that disney bought netflix behind all of our back that disney oh. has control and then they buy hulu Ooh, and it's just entire world <laughs> <laughs> i mean i'm actually kind of with you on that i feel like the real like creepy conspiracy theory news story here is the fact that disney is basically just starting its own fucking monopoly mm-hmm. it's like okay so disney now owns marvel they own hulu they own everything i'm like everything that you like disney either owns or will destroy absolutely Mm. and you know working in the tv industry ourselves like you find out things that are happening behind the scenes that you would never guess about acquisitions and channels that are merging and things that are just will blow your mind so i wouldn't be very surprised if that did happen no neither would i damn disney (laughs) damn moving on DC Comics has put their name back in the ring as a contender for horror content in the comic book world with the announcement of their brand new horror imprint, DC Horror, as well as their first flagship series for the imprint with a five-issue limited series set in the Conjuring universe. The series, titled The Conjuring, The Lover, follows a college freshman named Jessica who, along with facing all of the anxieties of being a college student, must also deal with the supernatural forces that have been set in her sights. The five-issue series is set as a prequel to the newest film in the Conjuring franchise, The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It, and will feature expansions on the lore of the Conjuring franchise, as well as some of the famous artifacts in Ed and Lorraine Warren's paranormal collection. They're talking about that spooky doll. Well, Ooh, spooky doll girl, uh-uh. <laughs> DC Comics has always had a huge amount of horror content. I don't know why they're saying they're making like a new thing, because even their mainstream titles like Justice League Dark is kind of a horror comic. There's like Swamp Thing was a horror comic. Uh, Lucifer, Hellblazer. I mean, there's like tons of horror co- and like Madame Xanadu, Dorian, a Nightmare. I know it all. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, wait a minute, Madame Xanadu, Zelda, Zelda Junior. Well, right. Um, no, but they have they've actually had a ton of horror content always. So I'm kind of surprised they're trying to rebrand this new thing like it's something new. I mean, it makes me think that they're probably just doing this rebrand to be like, hey, The Conjuring, The Conjuring, The Conjuring, it coming, The Conjuring. It has blipped across my radar probably three or four times. Just in the past couple of days. What's your opinion? Would it be Elise or Ed and Lorraine Warren in a supernatural battle? Who who comes out on top? This one's really easy for me. I feel like Elise would kick both their asses. Mm-hmm. And I would really love to watch. I mean, personally, because I think I just kind of love to see Patrick Wilson get his 
get his ass beat a little bit, but... I'm going to have to agree. I think Elise would pull out on top, but then right before she was about to claim victory, out from the closet door, bam, Tangina Barons comes <gasps> in from Poltergeist and kicks her ass and takes the crown. Oh, my God. Yeah. But then, before she puts the crown on her head, Dr. Loomis busts <gasps> through the wall, yes. drops a chain net on top of her, and beats her with a two-by-four. Two by four. <laughs> and throws her corpse in the basement. I love it. Okay, but for good measure, the Long Island medium pops up with oh, the top nails. Oh. Speaking of Long Island wig. medium, I got to tell you a stupid... I'm, I'm just full of fucking stories today. But yes. listen, so we, we have this new wig, oh. and I love a new wig. There's two things that make me happy in life when I'm in a bad mood. <laughs> Brand new, really styled, sharp wig and a big bitchy purse Ooh. that you can just like ram someone with, you know? Big bitchy purse yeah. trademark. Right. So we ordered this amazing new wig and it was so styled. I was like, it's so cool. It's so chic and cunty, right? And so we got it and somehow in the mail, because you know the way they pack wigs and ship it. By the time it got here, it turned into a fucking Long Island medium wig that looked like a Peg Bundy bouffant, and I wanted to die. Oh, no. I was, like, so happy. I'm like, yes, I'm, like, opening it up. And then I was like... <gasps> These are cha-cha heels. Exactly. Really oh ruined my, my day. God. Damn. True story. And they're sitting right over there on the shelf behind me now. <laughs> <laughs> And finally, for one last unexpected Hollywood horror story involving Disney, the screenwriters of the 1987 action monster film Predator are suing Disney over the copyrights to the franchise. Similar to the legal battle for the Friday the 13th franchise rights, Jim and John Thomas, the two brothers who wrote the original Arnold Schwarzenegger and Friends Get Oiled Up and Do Steroids to Fight an Intergalactic Alien Hunter Monster film, have filed a lawsuit in an attempt to return the rights to them after they claim Disney's right to ownership of the franchise lapsed last year. The Thomas brothers are being represented by the same lawyer who secured a win for the writer of the original Friday the 13th, which makes this case a little more interesting, as well as the fact that we are probably going to see more types of this lawsuit pop up as many iconic works from the 1980s are reaching a similar time limit on their original copyright provisions. Look what happened with Hellraiser. Exactly. Who knows? But it's kind of good news because some of these movies will actually be able to get made now. A lot of people like were locking in these rights and just sitting on them and refusing to let anyone make content with their IP. So it's probably uh, a step in the right direction. I love Predator too. I loved it when I first saw it and I still love it now. I'm oh good for God. like an action thriller. Let's get steroided up and greased <laughs> up in the jungle and fight a fucking intergalactic huntress. Like I'm there. Oh my God. I didn't know that because I love Predator. No, I love Predator oh too. God, I, didn't, yes. I didn't go on to watch, you know, all the other crazy totally. ones and I, and I don't really do Predator vs. Alien even though I love both of them separately. Totally same. Um, but I love the original. After 1987, nobody needs to see Arnold Schwarzenegger greased up. That's the truth. <laughs> Before 87, great. After absolutely not totally it's so fun I actually just like recently went back and rewatched Predator and it is so egregious like just characters just hanging out shirtless smoking a cigar like saying fag I'm like oh god oh, this is so offensive that's I the love 80s it. honey and I was actually just randomly I think I was just out like walking downtown thinking and my mind went to Predator recently this oh. week and I was thinking about that one scene for me it's the most memorable scene and I imagine what it would have been like to be on set as it was being filmed because sometimes you just you catch those 
what later become like the stamp moments in totally. a movie or in a, even some of the stuff that we do with Dragula. Like you film it and you're, you kind of already know you're like, that's the moment. This is like, like that is the moment. And this is the moment when Schwarzenegger has decided that he's no longer going to be the prey and he's going to hunt the predator and he covers, he covers yes. himself in the mud. And there's like that pan over a predator who's in the foreground and then in the background, he just opens his eyes and Ooh, he's, yeah, totally. that's so good. Oh, I love that movie. I love her. I love Predator. <laughs> We're going to take a break, and when we return, we'll be joined by our very special guest, the legendary Lynn Shay. Calling all creatures of the night. Wizard World has just launched their first Wizard World signature series with an exclusive lineup of the biggest names and terrifying titles in horror. For the uninitiated, Wizard World is bringing together the biggest talent across the genre for an international 10-event streaming series available now. Featuring stars from Hollywood horror classics like Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street, to new visions of terror like Stephen King's It and What We Do in the Shadows, Wizard World is bringing horror fans closer to their nightmares than ever before. To purchase tickets and for more information, visit wizardworld.com. Plus, find exclusive memorabilia and interact one-on-one with series talent and influencers at wizardworldvault.com. Creatures of the Night listeners can use the exclusive promo code PODCAST100, that's PODCAST100, at wizardworld.com forward slash dread to be among the first 100 to get a free ticket to the horror panel of their choice. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Okay, and we are back. And Lynn Shea, we just want to give you a very big welcome to Creatures of the Night. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for inviting me. I, I especially at this moment, am happy to be with creatures. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. In the night or in the day, if it is good. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime. Yeah, it's such a huge thrill and pleasure to have you with us. So thank you again from both of us. And thank you from all of our listeners as well. Thank you. I appreciate it. So most of our listeners know you from your work in the horror space, but you have one of the most impressive and diverse careers I've seen in a long time. You know, you've done tons of mainstream comedy films, tons of TV shows, lots of horror films. My question is, when you look back to the roles you had when you were first starting out, let's say, like in Hester Street or Going South, did you have any idea or inkling that your career would develop into what it is today? None. What's interesting, I was contemplating this the other day. 
I didn't really have goals about, well, I hope I win an Academy Award. I'm, I'm going to be this. I'm going to be that. I hope I, I never really thought about any of it. All I thought about is I love acting and I love pretending to be somebody else and trying to figure out who they might be from my insides. And it was, I really love the process. And so for me, that was the quest. It was every job was one line. I was as excited as if I had, you know, when I got two lines. <laughs> you know, I never was ambitious like that, which is even I found kind of interesting when I look back on my um, on my goals. I think that's a very kind of like Zen philosophy, very much just in the now, in the present, not casting into the future or all these plans and machinations. And I think maybe that's why you've had such a huge um, kind of fruitful career. Um, you know, that's really, I, I thought about that too, because there's nothing except what's my next, you know, what do I say? What are my words that I'm saying now? What's happening? I'm, I am in the moment. I mean, what, listen, that's all we got, really. I mean, that that's also kind of a philosophical thing to say. But um, I really, when I think back to myself as a little kid, um, I used to love to pretend to be other people. I mean, that was what I enjoyed. That was how I entertained myself. Those were, I didn't have a lot of kids in my neighborhood. I used to be in my room. My mom, when I think back, was really great. She was happy if I was by myself and happy. I played with my dolls, my stuffed animals, the clothes in my closet, and I would make up stories. And I would be all by myself and do all the voices, you know, all the animals and all the people. And um, <laughs> so from a very early age, I was schizophrenic. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I love that. And it's sort of, and there, and here it is. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> all these years later, I'm still with my stuffed animals talking to myself. <laughs> oh, my God. So, you so, know, a lot of people say that show business can be brutal. Not everybody thinks that, but some people do. So I was wondering, is there anything along the way that you kind of learned or a way to coach yourself, um, like when you doubted things or felt things were difficult? I mean, no, no different than the way you feel when you doubt things and think they're difficult when you're cooking. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, everything is sort of, I, I never really differentiated this from that. I, I guess my behavior has been guided and developed from my circumstances and the way I grew up and the people I've met, etc. I don't have categories about how I behave, sometimes mm -hmm. to my detriment. I mean, I, I sometimes have no censorship when I maybe <laughs> should because I'm in the wrong situation to be saying what I'm saying. But, right. but ultimately, I, I've grown to love myself for that, not criticize myself. And I've sort of acknowledged that I'm a little bit different than other people in that mm -hmm. sense. I haven't been programmed. I mean, we've all been programmed. We've been programmed by school, by teachers, by events in our lives, of course. But I, I never learned really. I, I watched the rules. I, I watched what the rules are. But I never really felt like I was a participant. I oh, mean, I, God, I'm finding you such a kindred spirit right now. Oh, like basically everything you're saying, I'm like, God damn it. That's like exactly how I live my life. <laughs> that you, you know, I mean, I, I don't want to be in the middle with all the people. I want to be on the outside watching and then mm. and making decisions <laughs> for myself. And I'm really am. I'm, I'm grateful for that. And maybe that's part of the reason. Maybe that's why I love acting, too, is, is it sort of takes me into a very personal place that doesn't have to fulfill someone else's expectations except in terms of storytelling and, you know, and communication. I'm not following the yellow brick road. 
I'm sort of off in the forest somewhere to the right. And then, you know, and kind of seeing the road on the other side and watching all those people. And for better or for worse, I feel like more of an observer than a participant. Your personal yellow brick road absolutely landed you kind of squarely in the horror space. And we were curious, are you into horror movies? Have you always been? Was that like a newfound love that you uh, came across like once your career sort of landed you there? Like, what what was that like? Again, it it was not... um, Genre has never really played a role for me in terms of choice. Um, I'm more interested in in the personality, in the story, in the reveal of how events shape people's lives. I mean, that's and whether it be horror, comedy, or drama, I, I feel those same elements are what draw me to a project. You know, for me, a comedy is as much a drama as it is a comedy, and a drama is as much a comedy as a comedy is. You know that they're Everything is sort of interchangeable in terms of your storytelling. So that I became uh, popular in the horror genre, I'm thrilled. I mean, I love the fans and especially horror fans are very committed to each other and to the genre they love. And they're extremely supportive and loving. I mean, you know, and and very, it's it's a tight group. I mean, they really know what they love. We found the same experience too. Yeah, absolutely agree. And so I feel very supported and very loved by being a part of that. So again, if it's a good story for me and a good character, that's what draws me to a project more than genre, particularly. So, Does horror scare you or do you enjoy horror movies like in your off time? They do not scare me. I realize (laughs) I don't always know what scares me, though, Mm -hmm. because I can't remember now what I was watching. But I turned it off and it wasn't even like a horror film. But there was something, some chord that it obviously played in me that really made me uncomfortable. I I actually can't remember what it was. I've totally blocked it out. But it was not a horror film. Mm, So so I'm never sure what's going to scare me. Um, Sometimes it's really unexpected. Stuff that's meant to scare you, eh, you know, (laughs) sort of scary faces, demons, all that stuff. I'm not really too worried about that. It's more Mm -hmm. about, pardon the expression, but it's the insidious way storytelling can sort of unearth, sort of untapped and unrecognized parts of yourself. You know, we all hide away the stuff we're really scared of. And often you don't know you're scared of it until something awakens it. So those are the things that, um, the things that surprise me and tap into those parts of myself. That's real fear. I mean, and fear is fascinating. I mean, it's a all-encompassing emotion. I mean, even more, I think, of all of them. You know, being scared is really, once that's there, it's really hard to shake that. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if our listeners know this, speaking of fear, but you actually played a teacher in the original Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. And I'm curious, what was your prediction for what would happen with that movie back when you were filming it? Like, did you have any idea that it would become this iconic film or did you think it was like oh i don't know what's going to happen with it i don't think any of us thought i mean you know bob shea is my big brother who started new line mm-hmm. cinema in 1968 and his uh, one you know his uh, fifth floor walk-up apartment in new york and wes craven came to bob and bob is a, was always the typical big brother he used to really make fun of me <laughs> you know <laughs> this is my sister linda she wants to be an actress that's how he would introduce me to people in a humiliating you know, moment of my life every time. But New Line had been around, I can't remember the year of the first Nightmare on Elm Street, you probably could tell me. The company started in 68, 
And then Bob didn't really get into producing films for a few years after that. So, mm -hmm. um, and Wes had shopped his movie around and nobody had made it, you know, nobody wanted it. And Bob thought, Hey, this could really be, this could be great. So the way I got into the film was my brother said to Wes Craven, put my, put my sister in your movie. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That was how so I cool. got nepotism is alive and well, and God bless it. You got to use what you got. That's all right. So long story short, though, um, I don't think any of us had any idea that was going to be as much of a hit as it was. So let's talk about Insidious and your iconic role as Elise in those films. Yes. So, so you're the star of this entire franchise. Like, did you ever think you would become like a horror icon when you were filming the first one? No. <laughs> the answer. <laughs> There's a one word answer. And, and this, that that too. I mean, everything's got wonderful storytelling, which is which I'm happy about because I love telling these stories. But I met James Wan through a mutual friend and he asked me if I wanted to do this little short he was doing called Doggy Heaven, which mm -hmm. is still on YouTube. It's worth watching. It's about a nine minute video starring Lee Winnell, <laughs> who plays this sort of jerk, jerk guy who asked me if I would do this little short. And I said, sure. And that was how I met Lee. A few weeks after that, James called me and he said, we've got this script. We don't have a title for it yet. It might be called um, In the Further. We don't know. And he said, but would you like to take a look at it? Because there's a role I think you'd be good for. So he sent me Insidious. And Lee, who's a very skilled and fantastic writer, I remember the font would change on the, in the script when the scary parts came. <laughs> you know, it was like, and, and I, I was reading it. I, I read it right away, and I was in bed. It was, it was in the early morning, like around one thirty in the morning. I was so creeped out, including the font. That <laughs> I literally took it downstairs and I locked it. I put it in the closet. I didn't lock the closet, but I put it in the closet and closed the door. And, I love um, that. and I remember reading Elise and thinking she talks a lot. That was mostly what I got from, from the character um, at that moment. And I mm -hmm. said, sure, I would love to if you get it done or you're going to do it. And sure enough, James calls. He says, so we have an offer out to Patrick Wilson and Rose Byrne, and they both accepted right away. And we're starting principal photography in two weeks. So that mm. that was that. Actually, there's a very funny, also a little anecdotal moment. We were shooting here in L.A. in this, I can't remember the name of the area. And we had these honey wagons. Nobody had a fancy trailer. The whole film was 800,000 800, shot in mm. three weeks, basically. And um, which is very low budget for our listeners. I mean, it's like usually can't even get a caterer, caterer for a day for under 800,000. 800, yes. And I kept watching. I would go back to my honey wagon. And then we had one security guard. And I kept, and I kept seeing this guy was like walking up and down in front of the trailers and he was always on his phone and I kind of noticed him and then I noticed him again and finally I went over to security and I said our our you know our door is locked and I said there's this guy who's like hanging around and you know whatever he said I'll keep my eye open so then it was lunch and I sat down at lunch and this guy is sitting across from me it was Jason Blum <laughs> Oh, oh wow! <laughs> I almost got Jason arrested. It was like, oh <laughs> so that was how I met Jason Blum. In case you were wondering. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so what do you what do you think it is about Elise that resonates in the way that you play her that resonates so strongly with moviegoers? You know, I don't know the answer a hundred percent. I finally came up with a thing. I think 
she is a yes person and she's a you person. She's not about herself. Mm-hmm. She's about, you know, our, we live right now in a, in a culture and in a world that's all about me, 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 me. And Elise is sort of about you, 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 you. You never really hear her. She's never worried about herself. She's always worried about the people she's trying to help. And there's something mm-hmm. very sort of almost subliminally beautiful about that. And I'm wondering if that may have a, be an aspect of it. You love her because she's, she's really there for the right reasons. Pardon that expression mm-hmm. from The Bachelor. <laughs> <laughs> no, I remember watching, you know, because I always resonated a lot with the character. I remember just loving her for some reason, you know, when, when I first saw her. And then when she died on the first movie, I was like, no, I thought this was going to be like a new, you know, like a new person in the horror world right. that we're going to come back to a lot. So then, of course, it, you know, they figured out how to keep bringing Elise back, which was amazing. But yeah, that first movie, I remember being like, oh my God, they killed her. What the hell? You and know? you know, it was there was actually a moment where James said to me while we were shooting, he said, we, you know, we're playing around with the idea whether we should kill you or not, because what if the movie is a success? And we wanted, mm-hmm. and I said, oh, don't worry about it. You know, whatever. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> Figure and, it out later. But I mean, what, what was kind of very exciting for me is there was sort of a bubbling after the first film opened um, where people kept talking about Elise. And I thought, that's so weird. You know, it's crazy because I had a, I had some wonderful scenes, you know, where I, I basically set up the entire world of the further. I mean, that's mm-hmm. really her job in that first film. And I must say that opening scene, even when I watch it, I'm so I love it so much. And I asked James that when, when at the house we were we were um, shooting at the doorbell didn't work. And so I said, can I, you know, here's Elise, the psychic who knows everything, except she doesn't know if the doorbell works or not. And, and, and there's that opening moment, which I think is one of my favorite moments I've ever done in a film where I kind of am ringing, I'm knocking on the door and ringing the doorbell at the same time. And I think um, Patrick opens the door. I almost fall in the, in the house because I'm not expecting the door to open. And I think that's also her, the entrance, the beginning of her character is very endearing and very vulnerable. And then she is there for the right reasons, again, on that expression, um, uh, you know, to help his family. I'm very puzzled by and also very happy that whatever it is that has to do with what we were talking about before, about me living in the reality of the present, that I'm able to bring to my work as an actress. And... I mean, there's so many great actors. I mean, come on. I mean, you know, I mean, I'm not saying I'm in that league at all, but there's an instant presence to to Elise that I think is very endearing to people and very um, and sort of different in terms of the genre itself. You know, that I, it's she's such a human being, you know, as opposed mm-hmm. to um, to an entity of any kind. So I think relatable. That, yeah. Yeah. Very warm and relatable. Yeah, exactly. So, so perhaps that has to do with it. And, um, you know, I just I hope I get to do more. That's all. <laughs> right now I'm feeling very vulnerable and it's a scary time. I mean, I, I feel kind of I lost some of my. Oh, I don't even know what the right word is. I, I, some of my joy, I mean, sort of really has dwindled this year. And that's a very sad place for me. I don't like that. I'm a very joyful person. And um, I hope it comes back. 
I do too. And I'm hoping that maybe this interview will be the spark of some new things yes. that will start bringing it back. Uh, you guys are wonderful. Thank you for that too. And thank you for just, I know we're, we're not, I'm here how, as long as you want to talk. I, <laughs> I, the dog was fed. The cat's not meowing. Oh, nice. <laughs> and the bird feeders are full. So I'm good. Oh, good. I, you know, I want you to know, and I, th- and I'm sure you already do. Like, you're not alone in that. Like, there's been a momentum that has just been stunted for everyone, and isolation, and even personally, I've been wrestling with trying to get excited about things, and then kind of yeah. falling into a depression. Yep, yep, yep. Hundred percent isolated. So, you know, I think just talking about it and leaning on the people around you is a good step to kind of recognizing that you're not alone, and hopefully overcoming it. And you know, the sun is out. This the no longer daylight savings time. Like all these little things are kind of clicking in. LA feels more alive. So I I hope that you have some of that joy and it enters back into your life. Oh, thank you for saying that. I agree. You know, it's just hard when, as you know, when you're in the midst, you know, of, and um, I actually, except for my creatures, I do live on my own, which I love, except that it took on a different tone. And that was, that would felt, that was crappy. If you're part of the expression. Mm -hmm. I mean, because Mm -hmm. I love being alone and all of a sudden I was like, I'm alone. <laughs> you know, it's like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Can I say it? Oh, fuck. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, so, on a good note, I will say pets are some of the best friends you can oh have. Oh, my so. God. I, I wouldn't <laughs> have made it without them. I really don't. I talk nonstop to them and to myself, by the way. I have. A, I really should have had a one-woman show this past year. <laughs> hey, maybe that's your inspiration for what you're going to do now. Yeah. No, it's too hard. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's true. Those are very hard to do. <laughs> yeah. But anyway. <laughs> so, so what do you think? Just going back to Insidious a little bit. What was your favorite uh, of the franchise to film? Like, which film was your favorite to film? Um, probably. Well, three and four were really Elise's films, you know, which I was also so, I felt so gratified because the, the character people wanted to see more. And actually Lee, um, when Al said, you know, I wrote the third one, which was sort of my history in a way, um, mm-hmm. because people wanted to know. And he said, you know, so and it's really funny. This is kind of funny. I always, when I figured who Elise was in my head, you know, as an actress, like, you know, what is my beginnings? Who do I, you know, who do I live with? Was I, was, did I have brothers and sisters? I always saw Elise as a loner and alone. And that that's how these, these entities found her is that she spent a lot of time in a room with her stuffed animals and dolls, you know, making up stories just like Linda did, <laughs> you know, <laughs> no, not, not, I'm sort of being silly, but, but that she was a loner and that that's how these demons found her, you know, they, cause she's her, she's opened herself up cause she's by herself. So mm-hmm. when Lee came up with, on the third one that I had, nieces and brother, it was like, who are all these people? <laughs> you know, I kind of, you know, he never asked me, you know, we never discussed my, my past or anything like that. But it sort of put a whole nother, um, and a whole nother element of who Elise was, you know, out there um, to, to the audiences, because now they saw I did have family and stuff. But I think those two, which were very heavily my past, were of course my favorite because I had the most to do. They were very emotional films. 
I think they're very beautiful films, too. I especially love the one Lee wrote. I think three might have been my favorite. I wanted to know Elise's story more, too, so I was so thrilled when they made three and four, and it flushed everything out more. I think it's so much to do with the life that you brought to Elise is why people love the character so much. I mean, there's writing it and, of course, what she looks like on paper, but then even just talking with you now, you're really warm and endearing. It's like, hey, we could hang out once we're done with the podcast. So I think you definitely bring some of that energy to the character. But let's talk about your antagonists, because I think Insidious has some really scary, especially like on screen. There are a couple of moments where when I was in the theater, like I definitely like jumped out of my skin, ripples of goose flesh, like just some really good moments. And that they also turned into haunts at like Universal Studios and all this kind of stuff, like such a great franchise for horror. But do you have any, do you have like a favorite antagonist from the Insidious world? I think the red-faced demon. (laughs) Same, same. I love Joe. First of all, Joe Bashara is a treasure in every way. I mean, he's, his music, he's, you know, he's composed the music for all of them. He pretty much does everything James Wan does. And he's one of the most interesting people that I've really, that I know. I mean, his perspective on life is very unique. His expression of his perspective on life is very unique, both through his music and through what he, you know, what he created for the demon. And a lot of that was his ideas and stuff. And actually, there's mm-hmm. kind of a great story that Ty, who was at the time, well, what, 10, so it was 2010, it was 20, you know, 15, 11 years ago was the first one. So Ty was a little boy. He was like nine or 10 or whatever. He was terrified of the red-faced demon. Ter- mm-hmm. I mean, in real life, like just totally terrified. So James said, and he would cry. I mean, he, he, they couldn't even, you know, he would just get hysterical. And so James said, okay, come and watch him get into makeup. You know, it'll be, and you'll see, you know, you'll see it's Joe. You'll see it's just your friend because he loved Joe. That was no problem. Oh, and wow. so they, in the makeup trailer, I wasn't there that day, but I, they started getting him into makeup and Ty's sitting there and Joe's talking to him and everything is great. Everything's great. And then I don't know when it turned because I wasn't there. But I think it was when they put his hooves on. <laughs> <laughs> and suddenly yeah. Joe stood up here or whatever. I mean, I might be making this up, but if I am, it's a good story anyway. So <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god, I love but, you. But I mean but I mean it was very close to this. And all of a sudden Ty kind of looked at him and they had been chatting and he just burst. <laughs> Into, into hysterical tears again and ran out of the trailer, you know, and it was just, there was something, I mean, Joe is, Joe is very intense and special and otherworldly for real. I want to have to agree with you too, like, cause I kind of went through and reminded myself of all, you know, all the baddies that the insidious uh, property kind of spawned and the red face demon would have been my vote too. There's that one particular scene. There's actually two. And I, and I think for everybody, these are both memorable scenes. If they have a love for the insidious films, when he's kind of shadowed in the kid's uh, bedroom, yeah, when, yeah, or, or yeah. In, when he's like kind of sick and you kind of see him there for the first time, yeah. like, Oh my God, the chills. Like I, I was so horrified in the best way. Like, it's just such a thrill for me. But the time where I was really like screaming was when his face was kind of right behind 
the main character and it's like this moment you had no idea and then it's just kind of like ah it was like Patrick, on the side. He was behind Patrick they, they, my god and they, they use that image often in in uh, promoting yeah. the films I feel like we've covered so much ground with you and I actually feel confident that we have some real insight into you your personal life and also the way that you look at your career as an actor and the roles that you say right. yes to right. or no to but we also kind of put it out there on our social media and invited people that follow us and sort of love Creatures of the Night and asked some of our listeners if they had any questions for you that they would like to pose. So we have a right. couple of them if you wouldn't mind fielding them. Well, not at all. And I'm sorry if I got off on a tangent. No, no, not at all. Okay. Yeah, no, really. There's no need to apologize. So we have a question from Camilla and she asked, how do you let go of or get out of a character once you're done shooting a film? It varies. And then sometimes it's more intense than others. But generally speaking, once you walk away from set, you need to make that distinction for yourself too. Otherwise, you know, it's because you do a lot of emotionally uh, taxing things sometimes with characters. And you, I think you really just, you go home and pet your dog <laughs> and have a glass of wine, <laughs> watch uh, an old Saturday Night Live <laughs> episode <laughs> and go to bed. You know, it's like, it's, it's really, it's not that difficult. You know, I think otherwise you become a psychotic mess. You know, it's right. hard. Another listener asked, has anything paranormal ever happened to you while you were filming? And if so, what? There was a moment I do remember in the first Insidious uh, that had to do with hypnosis. And there was this moment where I'm hypnotizing Patrick that I remember really feeling a change in atmosphere. Hmm, interesting. And uh, it might have just been James Wan in the chair <laughs> off camera. <laughs> but... <laughs> Who I adore, by the way, I couldn't say enough things about James Wan. He should, he's to be king of the country and of all countries. He's just a a magnificent person. But that was the only moment I remember when we were shooting. Another listener asked, what was the most difficult role you've ever played and why was it difficult? Oh, that's a great question. The most recent role I did on Penny Dreadful. Okay. Which was an exquisite series on Showtime. Um, it was uh, John Logan who created the series. It was about Los Angeles, 1938, as I believe it is. I played a woman who was born during the uh, Spanish American War. We didn't play for age. I mean, I didn't do any age makeup, but she's supposed to be like in her 80s. And um, it was. Nathan Lane is my scene partner. I mean, he plays a fantastic, it's a fantastic series that sort of went under the radar because the pandemic started right as the series was being released on Showtime. Mm. If you can find it, it's worth watching. A friend of mine recommended it to me. Oh, it's just great. It's just, it's a exquisitely written show, exquisitely acted. Amy Madigan is unbelievable in it. Nathan Lane is unbelievable in it. First of all, I was so intimidated. I was scared to death to work with. I was scared to death of Nathan Lane <laughs> I mean, because I mean, he—they're like royalty. That's you know, those those kinds of actors and performers and truth tellers to me are royalty. I felt very uh, intimidated, so that made it hard for me. And the character was a wonderful character uh, named Dottie Minter. She's a Nazi hunter. We're, we're hunting Nazis in 1938 Los Angeles. Interesting. Wow. It's a, oh, it's, it, and that was real. I mean, that's based on reality. There are, mm-hmm. you know, there's still remnants of concentration camps that were set up here by the Nazis. They wanted Los Angeles. They were, they wanted this city. 
It's historically accurate in terms of the elements it, it brings forward. I felt very inadequate. You know, I, I hate to reveal that, but I, I felt very inadequate as, a, as an actor in a way because I was, I was a recurring character. I, had, I was in six out of ten episodes, but it wasn't consistent. So hmm. I'd work a day, and then there'd be three weeks. And they shot it over seven months. They gave oh, it a huge wow. amount of time. Okay. So, so I would work a day, and then I'd have three weeks off. And then I'd come back for a day or two, and then there'd be another two weeks. So every time I came, I didn't feel part of the fa- I didn't feel part of the party. I didn't sure. feel part of the family. And um, I also am wearing a wig, a hat, an hearing aid, and glasses. <laughs> so I was physically detached from myself, if that makes any sense. Because Lynn, you have no idea how much sense that makes to us. Because we often talk about being, you know, performing in our characters and being in drag on camera. There's like kind of like an outer body experience that happens right. when, when the lights are on you. You feel so disconnected from your physical self. It's totally. just the strangest mental space to be in. I feel like I'm a passenger in my own body. That, that's kind of I, I. That's a hundred. That's totally I exactly the way I sort of felt. I mean, I didn't I didn't articulate it like that. And when I talked, because I had a hearing aid in, it was an old fashioned. I mean, it was from 90. It was accurate. It was, um, you know, technically a totally a hearing aid from the 30s. Mm-hmm. So I had something in my ear, something covered in my eye. I was wearing bifocals. I had a wig on and a hat on top of the wig. So I was really disconnected from myself. And I would hear myself talk. And I actually, there was one time I couldn't remember a line. It was one line. Mm. And I couldn't remember it. No matter what I did, I was so embarrassed. And I mean, God bless Nathan Lane because I was so I was humiliated. I couldn't remember this lie. It was one oh, lie. Oh, bad. It was. <laughs> I mean, I know how you are. And you know, I listen. It's the first time I revealed this to anybody, so don't tell anybody. <laughs> but I mean, but nobody else cared. I mean, you know, it was like because I and I was so embarrassed. Nathan Lane had monologues that were like five. Can I use the F word? Can I say that? Absolutely. Five fucking pages long. (laughs) And he never missed a word. He never missed a word. And here I was, I had one little shitty line. (laughs) It wasn't a shitty line, it was a really great line. But just one. Oh, that's was distracting, one. though. You oh, know, it's my like, God. Oh, so, I, that's, that's what we live through. It's I, I can completely relate to what you're saying. It's hard to concentrate on what you're doing. Well, I didn't what? know that. And then there's the adrenaline. Of, I didn't remember. You know, it was all those elements. And I remember I said to Nathan, I was so embarrassed I, to Nathan. And I said, I'm so – I said, well, how did that happen? Why did it happen? And he just looked at me and he said, because you're human. <laughs> 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 he, by the way, is just a remarkable creature of humanity i adore him and i respect him so much well listen i don't want you to feel too down on yourself for not being able to recall a line especially when you're buried (laughs) underneath all of those the wigs and the hats because sometimes drac is standing literally right in front of the teleprompter her line her line is right there and she can't even read it (laughs) well we wear white out contacts i can't see anything that's part of it you know but i mean there's elements like that and listen the bottom line is i do my best I never, ever, ever have not felt I've done the very best I have in me, you know, and and the moments are different, you know, different things affect you. And um, I hope I'm doing this. I'm going to cry now. Do you mind? I I hope I do this till I'm 107. (laughs) That's how old I want to be. I want to live here. I want to live till I'm 107. 
I would like to die on set. Wow. <laughs> so I'm putting this out there for any of those in the next 30 years or so. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I, I want you to do this until you're 107. 107, exactly. And, and, and I love it and I make mistakes and I'm not always as good as I hope or think I am or you know, but the bottom line is I hope I keep learning until I'm not here anymore. And listen, life is fragile and we become more and more, I think, aware of that over this year has just been very sad for a lot of people. And it gives you too much time to think about everything. Believe it or not, it's not so good to think about everything so often. <laughs> well, I think that's I mean, really good advice. And I think that's true. Yeah. So um, I'm grateful for what I've done. I'm grateful for right this minute. And I'm grateful for a future I hope I have. Lynn, I want to thank you so much for joining us. I, I, we have to end it there because, like, what a poignant message to just leave listeners with. You, you've been so kind of amazing and endearing to chat with. I, I want to hang out with you now, like, outside well, of the Well, we podcast. can later <laughs> if you get vaccinated, baby. Oh, we, we are vaccinated. Oh, we're, we're fully vaccinated, yeah. <laughs> I'll think about it. Okay. <laughs> you'll have to let us know. But you'll be around for another 30-plus years, so we'll, we'll either have to have you back and or hang out in okay. person outside of the Creatures of the Night. Thank you for wanting me, first of all. <laughs> Thank you for, for inviting me and um, love to you guys. Well, thank thank you. you so much for doing this. Seriously, it was a pleasure talking to you. I hope we stay in touch and that we work more together in the future because I just think, you know, you're so endearing on screen and, and I hope that your wish comes true and that you do tons more. Thank you so much. Okay, yeah, definitely keep in touch and I appreciate this interview so much. It was really fun. Great. We'd like to thank Lynn one more time for joining us here on Creatures of the Night and it is now time we move into our creature feature movie review. Now, we made a promise on the last episode of Creatures of the Night when it came out that Ian had never seen the movie Fatal Attraction. We knew we needed to flash back to 1987 and review this erotic psychological thriller. This movie was nominated for six Academy Awards, including the Best Picture, Best Actor, and Best Director, and we consider it a must-watch for any fan. The film stars Michael Douglas as a married man who has an affair with a woman who refuses to let the tryst end, and her interest in the relationship becomes an obsession. And of course, the woman was played by the legendary Glenn Close. What do you guys think? Ian, what was your impression of watching Fatal Attraction? Because this movie now is over 30, almost 35 years mm -hmm. old. So how do you feel it stood up to the test of time? And uh, I think, did you go in blind? Like, just tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, I went in totally blind for this film. I had never seen it. And I, everyone always tells me, it's like, oh my God, this is a classic. You have to watch it. And I was like, okay, you know what? That's, that's all I need. And to answer your first question, I feel like this film 100% stands up. Like, you could literally tell me that this was made today, and I'd be like, oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, the writing is really excellent, and the directing in the last 30 minutes, I was like, this is the scariest movie I have seen in a long-ass time. It's relentless, right? It's it, it is, horrifying. like, marching. And I think that there was – there. it was also up for an Academy Award for the editing, too, which oh, I failed yeah. to mention earlier. But some of that synchronistic editing with the music, and they were shifting scenes, mm -hmm. like, specifically the, the boiling pot, which is such a legendary <gasps> moment. And it, it left its psychological scar on me, too. When I first saw it, I was gooped because if oh, anyone yeah. knows us, we're huge animal lovers, too. So subtract the horror situation totally. of it all because it was horrifying. But just the fact that the animal cruelty, too, was just so devastating. The editing had everything to do with that. Well, that was a time, too, when you would see a movie and it was like, editor. Ed, blah, blah. You're like one editor. Oh, yeah. You, know, you oh, yeah. see the editors on like movies today and there's like 5,000. <laughs> totally. I mean, I feel like the scene with the rabbit, the second that the rabbit appeared on screen, I was like, 
God damn it. I know this rabbit is going to die. I don't <laughs> want it to happen. I don't know how it's going to happen. But then when they came into the house and it was like the lighting was so dark, it was like the middle of the day, but it's like very cold and dreary, which by the way, I love the fact that it's like always raining in this movie. Fabulous. Mm-hmm. But like, what is her name? Ann Archer, who plays the wife, Beth, she walks into the house and it's totally dark. She starts turning lights on and then she sees the pot boiling. And I was like, oh, absolutely not. And then like, just like you said, like the editing, it's like the daughter is running to the pen. And I was like, oh my God, no, don't open it. Don't open it. And then suddenly it's the rabbit inside the pot. If you don't have high blood pressure before you sit down to watch Fatal Attraction, by the time the credits roll, you're, you're on the verge of like a heart attack. Oh, yeah. So what did you think of the later half of the movie? The later half of the movie is terrifying. I mean, I feel like the first half is a great setup. And honestly, it's a little bit of a, you know, kind of like a morally gray kind of romantic comedy almost. Like, it's like these two people who are basically both assholes. Like, you know, Michael Douglas, who plays Dan, is a piece of shit. And so is Glenn Close's character. Like, they're both just kind of morally gray. But then as the film progresses, I'm like, oh, I see exactly how we're basically we're stuck with these people like there's just no getting away from it and that feeling of helplessness and hopelessness i was like oh my god i haven't seen a movie like this in forever it takes a minute to realize that they're not only both a piece of shit one of them is a psycho piece of shit i totally just on or both of them you know really the fact that the guy like seems almost remorseless you know yeah i do think that like obviously like glenn close's character alex is the villain of the movie but i definitely think we have to look at michael douglas's character and say this guy cheats on his wife and has basically kind of like implodes his life for no reason which i think alex actually she says a couple of times, she's like, why are you here? Like, if your life is so fabulous, like, what are you doing here? And she's he has, right. Yeah. And he has no answer because he's just an asshole. Like, his life is fucking perfect. This is in the middle of, like, the 80s, too. It is very much referred to as, like, the me generation. And you made reference to, like, oh, you were watching a movie. Was it Predator? Like, when they mm-hmm. just like, oh, they're saying fag, like, freely. And there was, like, a this pervasive, almost, like, psychology. Like, in movies in the 80s, you see it repeated over and over. Like, this dickhead Mm. selfish like step on others to get what you want put people down call people fat call people names like it just it repeats itself over and over and it was celebrated and encouraged that was the epitome of masculinity that you would aspire to the truth of toxic masculinity may be squarely rooted in the 80s right yeah so what did you guys think i mean this was a rewatch well i just want to point out quickly leading with hey this movie stands the test of time even 30 35 years later the writing is fabulous the storytelling is believable there are some like things that happen with the technology that oftentimes when we watch an old movie it takes us out of something that we can relate to like Mm -hmm. we can no longer relate when they don't have cell phones the phone is almost like a character in the movie and what the phone signals over and over and over The presence of the house phone and that just characteristic ringtone does not take me out of the fantasy of Fatal Attraction, like which is kind of unusual, I think. Mm -hmm. I thought it was just worth uh, pointing out. Yeah, I mean, I I felt like the first time that it happened, I was like, oh, my God, a world before caller ID. But then after that, I was like, oh, right, like this would make it absolutely horrifying if you just, you know, for the main character, he's like constantly worried, like, is it her? Is it her? Is Mm -hmm. it her? And then when she does start to interact with them using the phone, almost as her own psychological tool, I was like, oh my God, this is crazy. Yeah. I think the movie's thrilling to this day. Like, I still think it stands the test of time. It's a anxiety-ridden ride from start to finish. You know, it first manifests itself as a horror movie to me when she slits her wrists, right? Oh, the self-harm yeah. is because crazy Because it, it goes yeah. from zero to 100 right there, and you're like, okay, I see what we're doing. De- this isn't going to be a slow build. This goes from zero to 100. Yeah. And that was shocking, I think. And I think the effects were actually really good, too. Yeah, I thought that scene was really shocking, though, because there were a couple of times, and that's the first instance where I'm like, 
this is the point where you tell your wife and you call the cops and you like you you try to get yourself out of this. And instead, he's like, oh, let me bandage you up. Let me just leave you here in your apartment. I'm like, wow. Well, because the secret isn't dirty. It's like filthy. And he doesn't want to destroy his idyllic life. So mm-hmm. he literally has to bandage her wounds and try to like nurse her to a place where he's like, I need to get the hell away from this crazy lady. And then when she's in his office. Mm-hmm. Oh. <laughs> And how about, how, about when, how about when she turns up in his home and yeah. talking to his wife? I'm like, oh, oh that God. is the part. Well, see, this, that's the thing. And he did what I think the only thing you could do, which is I'm going to bust myself out now. But it didn't matter. That didn't even stop. No, it, it didn't. Mm-hmm. And the masquerade, just, at that point, the masquerade was just getting more involved and more layered. Yeah, so it may not be common knowledge, but we've talked about it here after we watched the movie is that there was a different ending originally to the movie. So originally in the movie, Glenn Close's character kills herself and so there's no she doesn't show up at the house and attack anybody and i guess when they tested it at movie theaters people were mad about the ending they did not like they they hated her so much that they wanted to not only see her die but die violently they said specifically they wanted to see her people take their anger out and so they refilmed it and glenn close did not want to refilm it because she thought that it did the character an injustice because she said, well, Mm. this is about mental illness. And now if you do this, it's going to change it. But they said, no, you have to do it. So she was forced to go back in and film it. And now we have the movie we have today. I find that so interesting. And it's kind of weird to imagine a world where test audiences can actually guide what the the way a film can be written and can be reshot and edited or Mm -hmm. maybe a whole new ending imagined. But there was another aspect I thought you mentioned too, that she kills herself in the original ending and frames Michael Douglas's character right, that's guilty, right. and then he goes to jail and his family is destroyed, which to me, I agree with Glenn Close fully. Like that actually is like this character's psychosis realized. Like she's not going to go hunt someone else and hurt them. She's going to hurt herself and just destroy all chances of her own happiness and his happiness. Mm. Well, yeah, I kind of feel like if that were to be the ending, I guess I would actually kind of love it. You guys know I love a bleak ending. And I feel like that there is nothing darker and bleaker than Alex kills herself. He is framed. His life is ruined. His kid's life is ruined. His wife, like just everyone is damaged by what's happened. But I will say that the way that it currently ends to me is a slam dunk of an Iconic. Ending. Totally it's satisfying. Insa- yeah. Oh my gosh. I was, I mean, literally gripping the sides of my chair. I was like, when she showed up in the back of the mirror, I was like, oh my God, Beth, no. But you can see where they made the decision because remember when Michael Douglas shows up at her apartment and attacks her and yeah, he strangles so her and he's brutal. Sli- I think that it probably happened after that. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's, he I probably that. left. So she killed herself and then framed His him. His DNA right is there. everywhere. Right? Yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh. That was the part that I kept thinking. I was like, he grabs the knife and is threatening her. I'm like, your DNA is 100% everywhere But they didn't do forensic DNA then, right? I don't think they did. I don't know how far along it was that. I don't think so. Uh, Well, what we can can safely Mm. say is that it definitely wasn't as advanced as it is today. Totally. There's one thing that I really loved about the ending scene when Glenn Close is getting choked and she's underwater and they put in blind contacts for her for like two seconds. And I was like, oh, blind contacts. Yay. And then like she's there and she doesn't have them in. And I was like, wait, that's weird. Why did she have them? But then she kind of like Carrie style, like rises out of the water for the jump scare. And I was like, oh, God, I love this movie. The ending is good. (laughs) Even if we think like the ethos. Totally changes i think the ending is like really satisfying yeah absolutely it's it is the exclamation mark on the end of the movie and you know that beth gets her moment and honestly i know that i think people have differing views on this but 
I'm a little like Glenn Close gets her I don't know the the big bad like she gets her villain kind of moment and to see her rise out of the bathtub and then get shot in that kind of almost like uncharacteristic for the rest of the movie sort of way I was like wow truly shocking I would say that that moment made the movie a classic. Whereas if they went with the other direction, we mm. probably wouldn't be talking about it today. I don't Maybe think. so. But you just kind of gave me the chills in this in this idea when you said, um, you know, when she was shot and killed there, that it made Glenn Close's character a horror icon. That character sort of haunting that house or like mm. haunting that neighborhood or the lovers Ooh. there kind of eternally. Fatal Attraction 2. You're welcome. Fatal Attraction 2, Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. So for those of you out there who've never seen the classic Fatal Attraction, I'm sorry that we've spoiled it all, but I also want to say you're welcome because now you know you should get out there and have a look at it because it is definitely a must-see classic. We're going to take a break, and when we return, we'll be reaching into our bag of mail to answer some of our Creatures of the Night listener questions. This episode is sponsored by the Final Girls Berlin Film Festival. Final Girls Berlin is a horror festival dedicated to showcasing horror directed, written, and or produced by women and non-binary people. We are committed to creating space for female voices and visions, whether monstrous, heroic, or some messy combination of the two, in the horror genre. Final Girls Berlin is now open for film submissions. Go to filmfreeway.com slash Final Girls Berlin Film Festival to submit your horror short or feature. The earlier bird deadline is June 19th, and there's also the regular deadline on September 9th and the final deadline on November 11th. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to get updates. We're dying to see your horror. All right, my curious little cadavers, we're going to take some time to answer some of our listener questions. Swan, why don't you do the honor of reading the first question? Craig asks... Did you watch the new Mortal Kombat movie? And if so, what did you think of it? Uh, I am an adult and I did not watch the new Mortal Kombat movie. Thank you. I am also an adult sometimes and I did watch the new Mortal Kombat movie. Of course I did. I love Mortal Kombat and I I love the game. I uh, Loving the movies is usually difficult, but I kind of, I watch them anyway, kind of like a moth to a flame. I know I'm going to get a lot of eye rolls and a lot of like, holy shit, I can't believe I just wasted two hours of my life. But there are some moments in there that I did love. And this iteration of Mortal Kombat was uh, true to form. You know, there was some stuff that I just, it was big eye rolls. I hated the way they did Melina so dirty. Like she died so instantly and quickly. Um, little Sonya blades, like energy blast. I'm like, there's no way she could do that to Melina that way. I think the way that they depicted reptile was kind of cool, but a little disappointing. He was a little too reptilian. I kind of like the reptile in a skin suit aspect of reptile. My Something's wrong with my eye. They're so rolled back in the back of my head that they're stuck. This part isn't for you. Just just sit down and be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> but to make it quick, because Drax really can't play this game, I thought it was weird to introduce a new character in Cole Young, but some of the standout moments that I thought were very satisfying to Mortal Kombat fans was Shang Tsung's like, soul-sucking power. They really expanded Sub-Zero in every way possible. His powers were so deadly. If you like his fatalities and his ice powers, it was so cool. Of course, maybe one of the most memorable moments, even though I have no idea who Natara is, and I don't think anyone really does, but Kung Lao 
did that fatality with the hat in the ground and just split her right in two. And that just brought me joy. Are you done, Jade Fox? (laughs) Moving on. Nick from Ontario, Canada asks, do you fear that Dragula could one day lose its authenticity to companies trying to get more ratings, etc.? I love the show and everyone who works on it because it feels so fair and real. I would hate to see it lose the passion and fire. Mm, I don't think that's anything anyone has to worry about. I don't see that ever happening. We've never really worked on mainstream projects. And if they ever do become successful, it's because they're subversive in the first place. So you have nothing to worry about. I totally agree. We're the gatekeepers and we're always on duty. Austin from New Orleans asks, I'm reaching out because I'm curious as to how each of you define queer and punk for yourselves and how they intersect for you. I'm going to say that both terms are kind of like rooted in the same thing, which is sort of like anti-establishment. Queer is basically like an otherness in reference to sexuality. At least it is for me. So if you aren't part of the very narrow, strict kind of binary, then you are queer. And punk is also anti-establishment. And to me is kind of like the ultimate self-expression. If you're one to bend or break the rules as you see fit and you clash against authoritarian ideals, especially oppressive ones or social control ones, then you, my sweetheart, are a punk. Johnny asks, in the last episode, Swan mentioned how much she loves monster movies. I too love a good monster movie. My favorite film has been Alien since I was a little kid. I wanted to know if Swan and Drac have any favorite monster movies and if so, why? I mean, I love all the classic universal monster movies, but I'll say Bride of Frankenstein, Daughter of Dracula, and Creature from the Black Lagoon. Ooh, very classic. Very classic. I'm going to say American Werewolf in London, which is such an awesome monster movie. Bram Stoker's Dracula. Even The Raft, which we mentioned earlier, I that that weird like lake blob, I think is so cool. Even though it's like the cheapest like plastic bag. I'm like, yeah, you I thought it was it. like a trash bag at first, <laughs> which it looks like it, but then they keep they change it, right? So then yeah. when there's a close up, there's like little tentacles and things. Yeah, in there. absolutely. <laughs> when they pull back, it's a tar. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to make mention of like kind of an honorary mention to Pan's Labyrinth, which is one of my favorite movies of all times. And it may straddle kind of fantasy and horror, but there's so much monster magic in there from Doug Jones's Pale Man, the Fawn, the Giant Toad. It's just chock full of it. Ryan asks, how do you maintain your authenticity as artists without compromising your values as individuals? What are the values you feel are intrinsic to you achieving your goals? I think this is an easy one. I feel like any time we've ever strayed in the past and said, let's do this to make money, it fails. Yeah. (laughs) Or let's do this because that's what they want us to do or that's what we should do. That also fails. Yeah. It's always our path to success follows the road of do what you're passionate about and do what you love and don't look to the left or the right. Don't look at trends. Don't look at what people expect you to do or want you to do. And when we follow our heart's desire, then we're successful. So it's pretty easy to stay on track because of that. And we share, I think, a very kind of rigid moral compass too when it comes to how we respect ourselves, but we also respect others as artists and we treat their work with the same respect we would like our own work treated. Mm -hmm. Ashley from St. Louis writes... Hello, it's Ashley. Hey, Kitty Ghoul. Oh, Ashley, that's so cool to get a note from her. This is someone that we've met many times out on tours and she comes to our shows and Ashley, we love you. Um, So Ashley from St. Louis writes, how do you get over being nervous in situations? I've heard Drac talk about having stage fright at first, but conquering it. And I would love any tips as I keep bombing the final virtual interview stage for jobs because of my nerves. Mm, Jobs are a hard one, actually. 
the best thing is exposure therapy. It's just forcing yourself to do it over and over and over again. I think that that is really probably the only way to get rid of it. I was going to say practice too. practice over and over again. It makes perfect. And the more you fall, the more used to it you are. And then it's not like a big deal and you can kind of like get over it. The problem is you're probably putting too much emphasis on the other person's judgment of you is what I'm thinking. Because if you're doing a job interview and that's tripping you out, then you're overly concerned with what they think. Instead, you should try to switch it to where you go in very confident and sure of yourself. And then you won't doubt yourself. You'll say, well, either they're going to like me or they don't. And it really doesn't matter either way. Mm. If it's right, they'll like me and I'll get the job. And if it's not, to hell with it. I'll you, do another job interview tomorrow. <laughs> you literally you literally have to find which way to trick yourself and which way it works and do that because you can also say like acknowledge it. You know, if you're kind of tripping up or whatever, you can it would be just as easy to say, "Oh my god, I'm so nervous because I'm really excited about this job." And then just move on. Cliff asks, "Anton LaVey once described his theory of the law of the forbidden." In quotes, "Where that which is not meant to be seen or acted upon is far more exciting than what is thrown in your face, end quote. Could you speak to this aspect of your career's experience? Do you think withholding your identity out of drag has helped build a mystique about you that adds to the excitement of the Boulay brothers? I think it probably has. It wasn't conscious in the sense of let's build a mystery around ourselves. Let's be mysterious. It was more like, you know, this is something we're doing. How can we treat this like a job that we can go home from? I think we've seen plenty of people that are in show business or, you know, maybe in the club world who wear their identities proudly as part of their self image when they're on the clock and when they're off the clock. And Mm -hmm. that does, that never works out. You have to be grounded and be a regular person sometimes. And I think that for us early on, we made a conscious decision to say when we're at work, we're these characters and when we're not, we're not. And that's it. Because we enjoy the anonymity and all that that brings to our private life. But also there's an aspect to this. Like, of course, people want to know what they, air quotes, can't know. This is like the the fruit of forbidden knowledge. If, if someone tells you we don't want you to look behind the curtain, you know there's going to be 50 people in the room that are dying to see behind the curtain. And I guess that is a little bit of the magic of the Boulay brothers. And finally, Derek from Missouri asks, I'm completely enthralled by comic books as of lately, the art, the characters, the stories, etc. Even though I've never touched one before in my life, are there any recommendations on what comics I should start with? Let him have it, Drac. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't know what kind of comic books you're looking for. You might be into mystery comics or superheroes or thrillers, so I'm not sure. But I will give you this recommendation that I think anyone would enjoy. And that is the suicide squad comic from the eighties, the original. Yeah. It's written by John Ostrander and Kim Yale. I believe you put that on to me years ago and I read the whole thing and it was so amazing. And, And if you're judging the story of the suicide squad based on the movies that recently came out, you will be surprised how wildly different the original tale is and how much better it is. Cause it is really good. Absolutely. And in the same vein, the new mutants comics from the eighties was really good. And they had like a, horror period that was really interesting remember they tried to make that new mutants movie yes which i thought from the previews they were going to tap into that horror vibe and so i thought failed to do so but the comics are still really good what was the name what it was an x comic it was like uh i think it was like around 2000 when they introduced those really quirky characters i think frank quietly was doing the yeah it was the regular x the uncanny x-men book Uh, but it they had just had grant morrison and frank quiet 
quietly believe yeah was the artist and it was just very out there and it was amazing quirky Mm -hmm. oddball characters but like very detailed personal stories and it was really good yeah so that's another recommendation i hope that helps what was that fashion one's name like jumbo Jumbo carnation Carnation. (laughs) (laughs) that's all the time we have for listener questions we'd like to thank you all for writing in And now it's time we change the mood a little and bring the lights down as we prepare for this episode's Haunting of History. For this section of the show, we like to dig up a real-life documented supernatural happening and give listeners an abridged history of the terrifying event. We encourage you to turn off the lights, find a dark, quiet place to relax in, and prepare for a journey into the unknown. Haunted House attractions are preparing for a massive boom this fall. After Halloween was all but canceled in 2020 due to the pandemic, frightgoers across the land are preparing to return to their favorite haunts in droves. Before you rush online to buy tickets to your nearest Fright Fest, it may be wise to take a look back at the history of haunted houses and a deeper look at some of the real-life sinister happenings that have occurred within their walls. One of the first examples of a haunt gone wrong began in 1957 with Principal William Hobart Sallie. The principal and his staff organized a walk-through haunted house for their students to experience in the days leading up to Halloween. The principal decided to prank his students by rigging a contraption that would make it look as if he had hung himself inside the house. As the students entered the room where the principal was set up, they were shocked to see his body hanging from the ceiling as grease paint and ketchup used to imitate fake blood ooze from his eyes and mouth. The school's English teacher, Mrs. Stevens, called out to Sally to take his picture, but there was no answer. Upon further inspection, Mrs. Stevens discovered the principal Sally's rig had actually slipped and that he was really hanging in the center of the room, dead of strangulation. Another trip to a haunt went horribly wrong in 2018 at the Nashville Nightmare Haunted House in Tennessee. A group of friends who were walking through the attraction were approached by someone claiming to be a haunt worker. The worker asked one of the girls in the group if her friend was messing around with her, and she said yes. The worker then handed her a prop knife and said, we'll stab him then. The girl took the knife, stabbed her friend, and discovered that the knife was actually real. The group reported that their wounded friend was gushing blood like something out of a horror scene, and he was rushed to a nearby hospital. The worker was never found. A similarly disturbing event occurred in October 2014 at the Land of Illusion Haunted Scream Park in Ohio. A 16-year-old girl by the name of Christian entered the haunt with her family for a little Halloween fun, and during the walkthrough she became so horrified that she suffered a heart attack and died inside the haunt. It was later reported by the coroner's office that the girl had a pre-existing heart condition, but a few years later in 2017, another man suffered a heart attack inside the 13 stories haunted house in Newman, Georgia. Immediately after his cardiac arrest, an ambulance was called and EMTs tried to revive him with a defibrillator. Unfortunately, he didn't respond to treatment and was pronounced dead later that night. While we here at Creatures of the Night love a good haunt, We advise you to remember these tales before you visit your next haunted house. For some of you, the experience may literally be to die for. 
Thank you all for joining us for another hair-raising episode of the Boulay Brothers Creatures of the Night. Be sure to keep up with us at BouletBrothersDragula.com. And remember to send your listener questions to creatures at BouletBrothersDragula.com. Until next time, ugly. The Boulay Brothers Creatures of the Night is a Dread Central production. Hosted by the Boulay Brothers with their co-host and producer, Ian DeVogler. Engineered and mixed by Carlos Bueno with music by Neuron Spectre.